0: This episode is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter with some bunny slippers from bunnyslippers.com. Look cool like Chris Knight from Real Genius. You know what? They've got all kinds of cool slippers, all kinds of novelty slippers of all sorts. If you like horror movies, they've got horror movie stuff. If you like fantasy, you like science fiction, they've got that. They've got sports stuff. They've got all kinds of stuff. They've got slippers you can plug into USB things. Anyway. Bunnieslippers.com. They are the sponsor of the show. And if you live someplace like in Australia, New Zealand, someplace where it's warm this time of year, they've got cool t-shirts at founditemclothing.com. Check out founditemclothing.com. I'm wearing one right now. can't see it, but it's, it's uh, a shirt that Jeff Bridges wears in the Big Lebowski. Check it out. It's pretty cool. Based off of a Japanese baseball t-shirt. Anyway, so... Uh, this month, we're going to be doing Jack London stories, so check that out. And there will be part of the calendar and what will be coming out listed in the show notes, so check that out right now. And also, why not check out Dave's Corner of the Universe.com? It's Dave's Corner. You've heard him on the podcast, you'll hear him in an upcoming thing that we're doing about. Underground secret bases and fan fiction and cool things like that. Um, Listen for the episode uh, of, uh, I think it's D U G S, uh, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. Check that out when it becomes available. I'll be hosting the first few episodes, of course, on this feed, so you can always check that out or chuck it out. And, you know, it's your podcast feed. Trim it how you feel. Anyway, uh, money for the shows, various shows, we'll get them their own podcast feeds if you want to listen to PGTTCM just by itself or Black Clock Audio Tales just by itself. Zach Ferguson has his own, but occasionally we're going to throw out Articulate Warblers and also probably we're going to have some of the shows by Dave from Dave and hopefully he'll still do some Dave's Corner of the Universe stuff for us, but you know. I love producing podcasts, so if you've got a podcast idea, track me down, and we'll do something, especially if you're in the Portland metro area. Um, I, I'm working with Zach, and he's over in Brighton, England, and, you know, it's working out so far so good. But yeah, no, uh, let us know if you got something that would be of interest to us. So yeah, on with some Jack London. Here we go. And why not check out Monster Kid Radio? And keep an eye and an ear out for Twisted Pulp. Twisted Pulp. Here we go, Jack London, right now.
1: The Sea Wolf by Jack London. Chapter 25. You've been on deck, Mr. Van Wade, Wolf Larsen said the following morning at the breakfast table. How do things look? Clear enough, I answered, glancing at the sunshine which streamed down the open companionway. Fair westerly breeze with a promise of stiffening, if Lewis predicts correctly. He nodded his head in a pleased way. Any signs of fog? Thick banks in the north and northwest. He nodded his head again, evincing even greater satisfaction than before. What of the Macedonia? Not sighted, I answered. I could have sworn his face fell at the intelligence. But why he should be disappointed, I could not conceive. I was soon to learn. Smoke ho, came the hail from on deck, and his face brightened. Good, he exclaimed, and left the table at once to go on deck and into the steerage where the hunters were taking their first breakfast of their exile. Maud Brewster and I scarcely touched the food before us gazing instead in silent anxiety at each other, and listening to Wolf Larsen's voice, which easily penetrated the cabin through the intervening bulkhead. He spoke at length, and his conclusion was greeted with a wild roar of cheers. The bulkhead was too thick for us to hear what was said, but whatever it was affected the hunters strongly, for the cheering was followed by loud exclamation and shouts of joy. From the sounds on deck I knew that the sailors had been routed out and were preparing to lower the boats. Maud Brewster accompanied me on deck, but I left her at the break of the poop, where she might watch the scene and not be in it. The sailors must have learned whatever project was on hand, and the vim and snap they put into their work attested their enthusiasm. The hunters came trooping on deck with shotguns and ammunition boxes, and most unusual, their rifles. The latter were rarely taken in the boats, for a seal shot at long range with a rifle invariably sank before a boat could reach it. But each hunter this day had his rifle and a large supply of cartridges. I noticed they grinned with satisfaction whenever they looked at the Macedonia's smoke which was rising higher and higher as she approached from the west. The five boats went over the side with a rush, spread out like the ribs of a fan, and set a northerly course, as on the preceding afternoon, for us to follow. I watched for some time curiously, but there seemed nothing extraordinary about their behavior. They lowered sails, shot seals, and hoisted sails again and continued on their way as I had always seen them do. The Macedonia repeated her performance of yesterday, hogging the sea by dropping her line of boats in advance of ours and across our course. Fourteen boats require a considerable spread of ocean for comfortable hunting, and when she had completely lapped our line, she continued steaming into the northeast, dropping more boats as she went. What's up? I asked Wolf Larsen, unable longer to keep my curiosity in check. Never mind what's up, he answered gruffly. You won't be a thousand years in finding out, and in the meantime, just pray for plenty of wind. Ah oh, well, I don't mind telling you," he said in the next moment. I'm going to give that brother of mine a taste of his own medicine. In short, I'm going to play the hog myself, and not for one day but for the rest of the season, if we're in luck. And if we're not? I queried. Not to be considered, he laughed. We simply must be in luck, or it's all up with us. He had the wheel at the time, and I went forward to my hospital in the forecastle, where lay the two crippled men, Nilsen and Thomas Muggridge. Nilsen was as cheerful as could be expected, for his broken leg was knitting nicely. But the cockney was desperately melancholy, and I was aware of a great sympathy for the unfortunate creature. And the marvel of it was that he still lived and clung to life. The brutal years had reduced his meager body to splintered wreckage, and yet the spark of life within burned brightly as ever. With an artificial foot, and they make excellent ones, you'll be stumping ship's galleys to the end of time, I assured him jovially, but his answer was serious, nay, solemn. I don't know about what you say, Mr. Van Wyden, but I do know I'll never rest happy till I see that Elound bloody well dead. He can't live as long as me, he's got no right to live, and, as the good word puts it, he shall surely die, and I say amen and damn soon, at that. When I returned on deck, I found Wolf Larsen steering mainly with one hand while with the other he held the marine glasses and studied the situation of the boats, paying particular attention to the position of the Macedonia. The only change noticeable in our boats was that they had hauled close on the wind and were heading several points west of north. Still I could not see the expediency of the maneuver for the free sea was still intercepted by the Macedonia's five weather boats which in turn had hauled close on the wind. Thus they slowly diverged toward the west, drawing farther away from the remainder of the boats in their line. Our boats were rowing as well as sailing. Even the hunters were pulling and with three pairs of oars in the water they rapidly overhauled what I may appropriately term the enemy. The smoke of the Macedonia had dwindled to a dim blot on the northeastern horizon. Of the steamer herself nothing was to be seen. We had been loafing along till now, our sails shaking half the time and spilling the wind, and twice for short periods we had been hove to. But there was no more loafing. Sheets were trimmed and Wolf Larsen proceeded to put the ghost through her paces. We ran past our line of boats and bore down upon the first weather boat of the other line. "'Down that flying jib, Mr. Van Weyden,' Wolf Larsen commanded, "'and stand by to back over the jibs!' I ran forward and had the downhaul of the flying jib all in, and fast, as we slipped by the boat a hundred feet to leeward. The three men in it gazed at us suspiciously, they had been hogging the sea, and they knew Wolf Larsen, by reputation at any rate. I noted that the hunter, a huge Scandinavian sitting in the bow, held his rifle ready to hand across his knees. It should have been in its proper place in the rack. When they came opposite our stern, Wolf Larsen greeted them with a wave of the hand and cried, Come on board, and have a gam! To gam, among the sealing schooners, is a substitute for the verbs to visit, to gossip. It expresses the garrulity of the sea, and is a pleasant break in the monotony of the life. The ghost swung around into the wind, and I finished my work forward, in time to run aft and lend a hand with the main sheet. You will please stay on deck, Miss Brewster. Wolf Larson said as he started forward to meet his guest. And you too, Mr. Van Waden. The boat had lowered its sail and run alongside. The hunter, golden-bearded like a sea king, came over the rail and dropped on deck. But his hugeness could not overcome his apprehensiveness. Doubt and distrust showed strongly in his face. It was a transparent face for all of its hairy shields and advertised instant relief when he glanced from wolf larsen to me noted that there was only the pair of us and then glanced over his own two men who had joined him surely he had little reason to be afraid he towered like a goliath above wolf larsen he must have measured six feet eight or nine inches in stature and i subsequently learned his weight 240 pounds and there was no fat about him it was all bone and muscle a return of apprehension was apparent when at the top of the companionway Wolf Larsen invited him below but he reassured himself with a glance down at his host a big man himself but dwarfed by the propinquity of the giant so all hesitancy vanished and the pair descended into the cabin in the meantime his two men as was the want of visiting sailors had gone forward into the forecastle to do some visiting themselves suddenly from the cabin came a great choking bellow followed by all the sounds of a furious struggle it was the leopard and the lion and the lion made all the noise wolf Larsen was the leopard You see the sacredness of our hospitality?" I said bitterly to Maud Brewster. She nodded her head that she heard, and I noted in her face the signs of the same sickness at sight or sound of violent struggle from which I had suffered so severely during my first weeks on the roost. Wouldn't it be better if you went forward, sat by the steerage companionway, until it is over? I suggested. She shook her head and gazed at me pitifully. She was not frightened, but appalled rather, at the human animality of it. You will understand, I took advantage of the opportunity to say, whatever part I take in what is going on and what is to come, I am compelled to take it, if you and I are ever to get out of this scrape with our lives. It is not nice for me, I added. I understand. She said in a weak, faraway voice, and her eyes showed me that she did understand. The sounds from below soon died away. Then Wolf Larsen came alone on deck. There was a slight flush under his bronze, but otherwise he bore no signs of the battle. Send those two men aft, Mr. Van Weyden," he said. I obeyed, and a minute or two later they stood before him. Hoist in your boat, he said to them. Your hunter's decided to stay aboard a while, and doesn't want it pounding alongside." "'Hoist in your boat,' I said," he repeated, this time in sharper tones, as they hesitated to do his bidding. "'Who knows? You may have to sail with me for a time,' he said quite softly, with a silken threat that belied the softness as they moved slowly to comply. "'And we might as well start with a friendly understanding.' Lively now, Jeff Larson makes you jump better than that, and you know it." Their movements perceptibly quickened under his coaching, and as the boat swung inboard, I was sent forward to let go the gyps. Wolf Larson, at the wheel, directed the ghost after the Macedonia's second weather boat. Underway and with nothing for the time being to do, I turned my attention to the situation of the boats. The Macedonia's third weather boat was being attacked by two of ours, the fourth by our remaining three, and the fifth turnabout was taking a hand in the defense of its nearest mate. The fight had opened at long distance and their rifles were cracking steadily. A quick, snappy sea was being kicked up by the wind, a condition which prevented fine shooting, and now and again as we drew closer, we could see the bullets zip-zipping from wave to wave. The boat we were pursuing had squared away and was running before the wind to escape us, and in the course of its flight to take part in repulsing our general boat attack. Attending to sheets and tacks now left me little time to see what was taking place. But I happened to be on the poop when Wolf Larsen ordered the two strange sailors forward and into the forecastle. They went sullenly, but they went. He next ordered Miss Brewster below and smiled at the instant horror that leapt into her eyes. You'll find nothing gruesome down there, he said. Only an unhurt man, securely made fast to the ring bolts. Bullets are liable to come aboard, and I don't want you killed, you know." Even as he spoke, a bullet was deflected by a brass-capped spoke of the wheel between his hands, and screeched off through the air to windward. "'You see?' he said to her, and then to me. "'Mr. Van will you take the wheel?' Maud Brewster had stepped inside the companionway so that only her head was exposed. Wolf Larsen had procured a rifle and was throwing a cartridge into the barrel. I begged her with my eyes to go below and she smiled and said, We may be feeble land creatures without legs, but we can show Captain Larsen that we are at least as brave as he. He gave a quick look of admiration. I like you a hundred percent better for that, he said. Books and brains and bravery. You are well-rounded, a blue-stocking fit to be the wife of a pirate chief. <clears throat> we'll discuss that later, he smiled, as a bullet struck solidly into the cabin wall. I saw his eyes flash golden as he spoke, and I saw the terror mount in her own. We are braver, I hastened to say, at least speaking for myself. I know I am braver than Captain Larson. It was I who was now favored by a quick look. He was wondering if I were making fun of him. I put three or four spokes over to counteract a shear toward the wind on the part of the ghost and steadied her. Wolf Larson was still waiting an explanation, and I pointed down to my knees. You will observe there, I said, a slight trembling. It is because I am afraid. The flesh is afraid, and I am afraid in my mind, because I do not wish to die. But my spirit masters the trembling flesh and the qualms of the mind. I am more than brave, I am courageous. Your flesh is not afraid, you are not afraid. On the one hand, it costs you nothing to encounter danger. On the other hand, it even gives you delight, you enjoy it. You may be unafraid, Mr. Larson, but you must grant that bravery is mine. You're right, he acknowledged at once. I never thought of it in that way before. But is the opposite true? If you were braver than I, am I more cowardly than you? We both laughed at the absurdity, and he dropped down to the deck and rested his rifle across the rail. The bullets we had received had traveled nearly a mile, But by now, we had cut that distance in half. He fired three careful shots. The first struck 50 feet to the windward of the boat, the second alongside, and the third, the boat steerer let loose his steering oar and crumpled up in the bottom of the boat. I guess that'll fix them, Wolf Larson said, rising to his feet. I couldn't afford to let the hunter have it. And there's a chance the boat puller doesn't know how to steer, in which case the hunter cannot steer and shoot at the same time. His reasoning was justified, for the boat rushed at once into the wind and the hunter sprang aft to take the boat steerer's place. There was no more shooting, though the rifles were still cracking merrily from the other boats. The hunter had managed to get the boat before the wind again, but we ran down upon it, going at least two feet to its one. A hundred yards away, I saw the boat puller pass a rifle to the hunter. Wolf Larsen went amidships and took the coil of the throat halyards from its pin. Then he peered over the rail with leveled rifle. Twice I saw the hunter let go the steering oar with one hand, reach out for his rifle and hesitate. We were now alongside and foaming past. Here, you! Wolf Larsen cried suddenly to the boat puller. Take a turn! At the same time, he flung the coil of rope. It struck fairly, nearly knocking the man over, but he did not obey. Instead, he looked to his hunter for orders. The hunter, in turn, was in a quandary. His rifle was between his knees, but if he let go the steering oar in order to shoot, the boat would sweep around and collide with the schooner. Also, he saw Wolf Larsen's rifle bearing upon it, and knew he would be shot ere he could get his rifle into play. Take a turn, he said quietly to the man. The boat-puller obeyed, taking a turn around the little forward thwart and paying the line as Jerk taut. The boat sheered out with a rush, and the hunter steadied it to a parallel course some twenty feet from the side of the ghost. Now get that sail down, and come alongside, Wolf Larsen ordered. He never let go his rifle, even passing down the tackles with one hand. When they were fast, Bow and Stern, and the two uninjured men prepared to come aboard, the hunter picked up his rifle, as if to place it in a secure position. Drop it, Wolf Larsen cried, and the hunter dropped it, as though it were hot and had burned him. Once aboard, the two prisoners hoisted in the boat and, under Wolf Larsen's direction, carried the wounded boat steerer down to the forecastle. If our five boats do as well as you and I have done, we'll have a pretty full crew, Wolf Larsen said to me. The man you shot, he is, I hope, Maud Brewster quavered. In the shoulder, he answered. Nothing serious. Mr. Van Waden will pull him around as good as ever in three or four weeks. But he won't pull those chaps around from the look of it, he added, pointing at the Macedonia's third boat, for which I had been steering and which was now nearly abreast of us. That's Horner's and Smoke's work. I told them we wanted live men, not carcasses. But the joy of shooting to hit is a most compelling thing when once you've learned how to shoot. Ever experienced it, Mr. Van Waitens? I shook my head and regarded their work. It had indeed been bloody, for they had drawn off and joined our other three boats in the attack on the remaining two of the enemy. The deserted boat was in the trough of the sea, rolling drunkenly across each comber, its loose spritsail sail out at right angles to it and fluttering and flapping in the wind. The hunter and boat-puller were both lying awkwardly in the bottom, but the boat-steerer lay across the gunwale, half in and half out, his arms trailing in the water and his head rolling from side to side. "'Don't look, Miss Brewster. Please, don't look,' I had begged of her, and I was glad that she had minded me and been spared the sight. "'Head right into the bunch, Mr. Van Waden,' was Wolf Larsen's command. As we drew near, the firing ceased, and we saw that the fight was over. The remaining two boats had been captured by our five, and the seven were grouped together waiting to be picked up. "'Look at that!' I cried involuntarily, pointing to the northeast. The blot of smoke, which indicated the Macedonian's position, had reappeared. "'Yes, I've been watching it,' was Wolf Larsen's calm reply. He measured the distance away to the fog bank, and for an instant paused to feel the weight of the wind on his cheek. We'll make it, I think, but you can't depend upon it. That blessed brother of mine has twigged our little game, and is just a-humping for us. Ah, look at that! The blot of smoke had suddenly grown larger, and it was very black. I'll beat you out, though, brother Mize. he chuckled. I'll beat you out, and I hope you know worse than that you rack your old engines into scrap. When we hove to, a hasty, though orderly, confusion reigned. The boats came aboard from every side at once. As fast as the prisoners came over the rail, they were marshaled forward to the forecastle by our hunters, while the sailors hoisted in the boats pell-mell, dropping them anywhere upon the deck and not stopping to lash them. WE WERE ALREADY UNDERWAY, ALL SAILS SET AND DRAWING, AND THE SHEETS BEING SLACKED OFF FOR A WIND ABEAM, AS THE LAST BOAT LIFTED CLEAR OF THE WATER AND SWUNG IN THE TACKLES. THERE WAS NEED FOR HASTE. THE MACEDONIA, BELCHING the BLACKEST OF SMOKE FROM HER FUNNEL, WAS CHARGING DOWN UPON US FROM OUT OF THE NORTHEAST. NEGLECTING THE BOATS THAT REMAINED TO HER, SHE HAD ALTERED HER COURSE SO AS TO ANTICIPATE ours. She was not running straight for us, but ahead of us. Our courses were converging like the sides of an angle, the vertex of which was at the edge of the fog bank. It was there, or not at all, that the Macedonia could hope to catch us. The hope for the ghost lay in that she should pass that point before the Macedonia arrived at it. Wolf Larsen was steering his eyes glistening and snapping as they dwelt upon and leaped from detail to detail of the chase. Now he studied the sea to windward for signs of the wind slackening or freshening, now the Macedonian. And again his eyes roved over every sail, and he gave commands to slack a sheet here a trifle, to come in on one there a trifle, till he was drawing out of the ghost the last bit of speed she possessed, All feuds and grudges were forgotten, and I was surprised at the alacrity with which the men, who had so long endured his brutality, sprang to execute his orders. Strange to say, the unfortunate Johnson came into my mind as we lifted and surged and heeled along, and I was aware of a regret that he was not alive and present. He had so loved the ghost and delighted in her sailing powers. Better get your rifles, you fellows, Wolf Larsen called to our hunters, and five men lined the lee rail, guns in hand, and waited. The Macedonia was now but a mile away, the black smoke pouring from her funnel at a right angle, so madly she raced, pounding through the sea at a 17 knot gait. Sky hooting through the brine, as Wolf Larsen quoted while gazing at her. We were not making more than nine knots. But the fog bank was very near. A puff of smoke broke from the Macedonia's deck. We heard a heavy report, and a round hole took form in the stretched canvas of our mainsail. They were shooting at us with one of the small cannon which rumor had said they carried on board. Our men, clustering amidships, waved their hats and raised a derisive cheer. Again there was a puff of smoke and a loud report this time the cannonball striking not more than twenty feet astern and glancing twice from sea to sea to windward ere it sank. But there was no rifle firing, for the reason that all their hunters were out in the boats or our prisoners. When the two vessels were half a mile apart, a third shot made another hole in our mainsail. Then we entered the fog. It was about us, veiling and hiding us in its dense wet gauze the sudden transition was startling. The moment before we had been leaping through the sunshine, the clear sky above us, the sea breaking and rolling wide to the horizon, and a ship vomiting smoke and fire and iron missiles rushing madly upon us. And at once, as in an instant's leap, the sun was blotted out, there was no sky, even our mastheads were lost to view, and a horizon was such as tear-blinded eyes may see. The gray mist drove by us like a rain. Every woollen filament of our garments, every hair of our heads and faces, was jeweled with a crystal globule. The shrouds were wet with moisture. It dripped from our rigging overhead. And on the underside of our booms, drops of water took shape in long, swaying lines which were detached and flung to the deck in mimic showers at each surge of the schooner. I was aware of a pent, stifled feeling. As the sounds of the ship thrusting herself through the waves were hurled back upon us by the fog, so were one's thoughts. The mind recoiled from contemplation of a world beyond this wet veil which wrapped us around. This was the world, the universe itself, its bounds so near one felt impelled to reach out both arms and push them back. It was impossible that the rest could be beyond these walls of grey. The rest was a dream, no more than the memory of a dream. It was weird strangely weird. I looked at Maud Brewster and knew that she was similarly affected. Then I looked at Wolf Larson, but there was nothing subjective about his state of consciousness. His whole concern was with the immediate objective present. He still held the wheel, and I felt that he was timing time, reckoning the passage of the minutes with each lunge forward and leeward roll of the ghost. Go forward! And heartily, without any noise, he said to me in a low voice. Clue up the topsails first. Set men at all the sheets. Let there be no rattling of blocks, no sounds of voices. No noise, understand? No noise. When all was ready, the word was passed forward to me from man to man, and the ghost heeled about on the port tack with practically no noise at all. And what little there was, the slapping of a few reef points and the creaking of a sheaf in a block or two, was ghostly under the hollow echoing pall in which we were swathed. We had scarcely filled away, it seemed, when the fog thinned abruptly and we were again in the sunshine, the wide-stretching sea breaking before us to the skyline. But the ocean was bare. No wrathful Macedonia broke its surface or blackened the sky with her smoke. Wolf Larsen at once squared away and ran down the rim of the fog bank. His trick was obvious. He had entered the fog to windward of the steamer, and while the steamer had blindly driven on into the fog in the chance of catching him, he had come about and out of his shelter and was now running down to re-enter to leeward. Successful in this, the old simile of the needle in the haystack would be mild indeed compared with his brother's chance of finding him. He did not run long. Jibbing the foreign main sails and setting the topsails again, we headed back into the bank. As we entered, I could have sworn I saw a vague bulk emerging to windward. I looked quickly at Wolf Larsen. Already we were ourselves buried in the fog, but he nodded his head. He too had seen it. The Macedonia, guessing his maneuver and failing by a moment in anticipating it. There was no doubt that we had escaped unseen. He can't keep this up, Wolf Larsen said. He'll have to go back for the rest of his boats. Send the man to the wheel, Mr. Van Waden. Keep this course for the present, and you might as well set the watches, for we won't do any lingering tonight. I'd give $500, though, he added, just to be aboard the Macedonia for five minutes listening to my brother curse. And now, Mr. Van Weyden, he said to me, when he had been relieved from the wheel, We must make these newcomers welcome, serve out plenty of whiskey to the hunters, and see that a few bottles slip forward. I'll wager every man jack of them is over the side tomorrow, hunting for Wolf Larsen as contentedly as ever they hunted for Death Larsen. But won't they escape as Wainwright did? I asked. He laughed shrewdly. (laughs) Ha! Not as long as our old hunters have anything to say about it. I'm dividing amongst them a dollar a skin for all the skins shot by our new hunters. At least half of their enthusiasm today was due to that. Oh no, there won't be any escaping if they have anything to say about it. And now you better get forward to your hospital duties. There must be a full ward waiting for you. End of chapter 25 THE SEA WOLF BY JACK London, CHAPTER 26 Wolf Larsen took the distribution of the whiskey off my hands, and the bottles began to make their appearance while I worked over the fresh batch of wounded men in the forecast. I had seen whiskey drunk, such as whiskey and soda, by the men of the clubs, but never as these men drank it, from pannikins and mugs and from the bottles. Great brimming drinks, each one of which was in itself a debauch. But they did not stop at one or two. They drank and drank, and ever the bottles slipped forward, and they drank more. Everybody drank. The wounded drank. Oofty, oofty, who helped me, drank. Only Lewis refrained, no more than cautiously wetting his lips with the liquor. Though he joined in the revels with an abandon equal to that of most of them. It was a Saturnalia. In loud voices they shouted over the day's fighting, wrangled about details, or waxed affectionate and made friends with the men whom they had fought. Prisoners and captors hiccuped on one another's shoulders and swore mighty oaths of respect and esteem. They wept over the miseries of the past and over the miseries yet to come under the iron rule of Wolf Larsen and all cursed him and told terrible tales of his brutality. It was a strange and frightful spectacle. The small bunk-lined space, the floor and walls leaping and lurching, the dim light, the swaying shadows lengthening and foreshortening monstrously, the thick air heavy with smoke and the smell of bodies and iodoform and the inflamed faces of the men, half-men, I should call them, I noted Ufty Ufty holding the end of a bandage and looking upon the scene, his velvety and luminous eyes glistening in the light like a deer's eyes. And yet I knew the barbaric devil that lurked in his breast and belied all the softness and tenderness, almost womanly, of his face and form. And I noticed the boyish face of Harrison, a good face once but now a demon's, convulsed with passion as he told the newcomers of the hellship they were in. And shriek curses upon the head of Wolf Larsen. Wolf Larsen it was, always Wolf Larsen, enslaver and tormentor of men, a male Kierke, and these his swine, suffering brutes that groveled before him and revolted only in drunkenness and in secrecy. And was I too one of his swine, I thought. And Maud Brewster? No. I ground my teeth in my anger and determination till the man I was attending winced under my hand, and oofty-oofty looked at me with curiosity. I felt endowed with a sudden strength, what of my newfound love? I was a giant, I feared nothing. I would work my will through it all in spite of Wolf Larsen, and of my own thirty-five bookish years. All would be well, I would make it well, and so, exalted, Upborne by a sense of power, I turned my back on the howling inferno and climbed to the deck, where the fog drifted ghostly through the night and the air was sweet and pure and quiet. The steerage, where were the two wounded hunters, was a repetition of the forecastle, except that Wolf Larsen was not being cursed, and it was with a great relief that I again emerged on deck and went aft to the cabin. Supper was ready and Wolf Larsen and Maud were waiting for me. While all his ship was getting drunk as fast as it could, he remained sober. Not a drop of liquor passed his lips. He did not dare it under the circumstances, for he had only Lewis and me to depend upon, and Lewis was even now at the wheel. We were sailing on through the fog without a lookout and without lights that Wolf Larsen had turned the liquor loose upon his men surprised me, but he evidently knew their psychology and the best method of cementing in cordiality what had begun in bloodshed. His victory over Death Larsen seemed to have had a remarkable effect upon him. The previous evening he had reasoned himself into the blues, and I had been waiting momentarily for one of his characteristic outbursts, yet nothing had occurred and he was now in splendid trim. Possibly his success in capturing so many hunters and boats had counteracted the customary reaction. At any rate, the blues were gone, and the Blue Devils had not put in an appearance. So I thought at the time. But ah me! Little I knew him, or knew that even then perhaps, he was meditating an outbreak more terrible than any I had seen. As I say, he discovered himself in splendid trim when I entered the cabin. He had had no headaches for weeks. His eyes were clear blue as the sky. His bronze was beautiful with perfect health. Life swelled through his veins in full and magnificent flood. While waiting for me, he had engaged Maud in animated discussion. Temptation was the topic they had hit upon and from the few words I heard, I made out that he was contending that temptation was temptation only when a man was seduced by it and fell. For look you, he was saying, as I see it, a man does things because of desire. He has many desires. He may desire to escape pain or to enjoy pleasure, but whatever he does, he does because he desires to do it. But suppose he desires to do two opposite things, neither of which will permit him to do the other," Maud interrupted. The very thing I was coming to, he said. And between these two desires is just where the soul of the man is manifest," she went on. If it is a good soul, it will desire and do the good action, and the contrary if it is a bad soul. It is the soul that decides. Bosh and nonsense! he exclaimed impatiently. It is the desire that decides. Here is a man who wants to, say, get drunk. Also, he doesn't want to get drunk. What does he do? How does he do it? He is a puppet. He is a creature of his desires, and of the two desires, he obeys the strongest one. That is all. His soul hasn't anything to do with it. How can he be tempted to get drunk and refuse to get drunk? If the desire to remain sober prevails, it is because it is the strongest desire. Temptation plays no part, unless... He paused while grasping the new thought which had come into his mind. Unless he is tempted to remain sober. Ha 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 He laughed. What do you think of that, Mr. Van Wayden? That both of you are hair-splitting, I said. The man's soul is his desires, or if you will, the sum of his desires is his soul. Therein you are both wrong. You lay the stress upon the desire apart from the soul. Miss Brewster lays the stress on the soul apart from the desire. And in point of fact, soul and desire are the same thing. However, I continued, Miss Brewster is right in contending that temptation is temptation whether the man yield or overcome. Fire is fanned by the wind until it leaps up fiercely. So is desire like fire. It is fanned as by a wind, by sight of the thing desired, or by a new and luring description or comprehension of the thing desired. There lies the temptation. It is the wind that fans the desire until it leaps up to master. That's temptation. It may not fan sufficiently to make the desire overmastering, but in so far as it fans at all, that far it is temptation, and as you say, it may tempt for good as well as for evil. I felt proud of myself as we sat down to the table. My words had been decisive, at least they had put an end to the discussion. But Wolf Larsen seemed voluble, prone to speech as I had never seen him before. It was as though he were bursting with pent energy which must find an outlet somehow. Almost immediately he launched into a discussion on love. As usual, his was the sheer materialistic side and Maud's was the idealistic. For myself, beyond a word or so of suggestion or correction now and again, I took no part. He was brilliant, but so was Maud, and for some time I lost the thread of the conversation through studying her face as she talked. It was a face that rarely displayed color, but tonight it was flushed and vivacious. Her wit was playing keenly, and she was enjoying the tilt as much as Wolf Larsen. And he was enjoying it hugely. For some reason, though I know not why in the argument so utterly had I lost it in the contemplation of one stray brown lock of hair, he quoted from Isalt at Tintagel where she says Lest am I beyond women even herein, that beyond all born women is my sin, and perfect my transgression. As he had read pessimism into Omar, so now he read triumph, stinging triumph and exultation into Swyburn's lines. And he read rightly, and he read well. He had hardly ceased reading when Lewis put his head into the companionway and whispered down, Be easy, will you? The fog's lifted, and tis the port light of a steamer that's crossing our bow this blessed minute. Wolf Larsen sprang on deck, and so swiftly that by the time we followed, he had pulled the steerage slide over the drunken clamor and was on his way forward to close the forecastle scuttle. The fog, though it remained, had lifted high, where it obscured the stars and made the night quite black. Directly ahead of us, I could see a bright red light and a white light, and I could hear the pulsing of a steamer's engines. Beyond a doubt, it was the Macedonia. Wolf Larsen had returned to the poop, and we stood in a silent group watching the lights rapidly cross our bow. Lucky for me, he doesn't carry a searchlight, Wolf Larsen said. What if I should cry out loudly? I queried in a whisper. It would be all up, he answered. But have you thought upon what would immediately happen? Before I had time to express any desire to know, he had me by the throat with his gorilla grip, and by a faint quiver of the muscles. A hint, as it were, he suggested to me the twist that would surely have broken my neck. The next moment he had released me and we were gazing at the Macedonia's lights. What if I should cry out? Maud asked. I like you too well to hurt you, he said softly. Nay, there was a tenderness and a caress in his voice that made me wince. But don't do it just the same, for I'd promptly break Mr. Van Weyden's neck. Then she has my permission to cry out, I said defiantly. I hardly think you'll care to sacrifice the Dean of American Letters the second, he sneered. We spoke no more, though we had become too used to one another for the silence to be awkward. And when the red light and the white had disappeared, we returned to the cabin to finish the interrupted supper. Again they fell to quoting, and Maud gave Dowson's impenitentia ultima. She rendered it beautifully. But I watched not her, but Wolf Larsen. I was fascinated by the fascinated look he bent upon Maud. He was quite out of himself, and I noticed the unconscious movement of his lips as he shaped word for word as fast as she uttered them. He interrupted her when she gave the lines, and her eyes should be my light while the sun went out behind me, and the voiles in her voice be the last sound in my ear. There are voiles in your voice, he said bluntly, and his eyes flashed their golden light. I could have shouted with joy at her control. She finished the concluding stanza without faltering, and then slowly guided the conversation into less perilous channels. And all the while, I sat in a half daze, the drunken riot of the steerage breaking through the bulkhead, the man I feared and the woman I loved talking on and on. The table was not cleared. The man who had taken Mugridge's place had evidently joined his comrades in the farcassion. If ever Wolf Larsen attained the summit of living, he attained it then. From time to time, I forsook my own thoughts to follow him, and I followed in a maze, mastered for the moment by his remarkable intellect, under the spell of his passion, for he was preaching the passion of revolt. It was inevitable that Milton's Lucifer should be instanced and the keenness with which Wolf Larson analyzed and depicted the character was a revelation of his stifled genius. It reminded me of Tane, yet I knew the man had never heard of that brilliant, though dangerous, thinker. He led a lost cause, and he was not afraid of God's thunderbolts, Wolf Larson was saying. Hurled into hell, he was unbeaten. A third of God's angels he had led with him. And straightway he incited man to rebel against God, and gained for himself and hell the major portion of all the generations of man. Why was he beaten out of heaven? Because he was less brave than God? Less proud? Less aspiring? No, a thousand times no. God was more powerful. As he said, Whom thunder hath made greater. But Lucifer was a free spirit. To serve was to suffocate. He preferred suffering and freedom to all the happiness of a comfortable servility. He did not care to serve God. He cared to serve nothing. He was no figurehead. He stood on his own legs. He was an individual. The first anarchist, Maud laughed. Rising and preparing to withdraw to her state, then it is good to be an anarchist, he cried. He too had risen, and he stood facing her where she had paused at the door of her room, as he went on. Here at least we shall be free. The Almighty hath not built here for his envy. He will not drive us hence. Here we may reign secure, and in my choice to reign is worth ambition, though in hell. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. It was the defiant cry of a mighty spirit. The cabin still rang with his voice as he stood there swaying, his bronze face shining, his head up and dominant, and his eyes, golden and masculine, intensely masculine and insistently soft, flashing upon Maud at the door. Again, that unnameable and unmistakable terror was in her eyes, and she said, almost in a whisper, You are Lucifer. The door closed and she was gone. He stood staring after her for a minute, then returned to himself and to me. I'll relieve Lewis at the wheel he said shortly, and call upon you to relieve at midnight. Better turn in now and get some sleep. He pulled on a pair of mittens, put on his cap, and ascended the companion stairs, while I followed his suggestion by going to bed. For some unknown reason, prompted mysteriously, I did not undress, but I lay down fully clothed. For a time I listened to the clamor in the steerage and marveled upon the love which had come to me, But my sleep on the ghost had become most healthful and natural, and soon the songs and cries died away, my eyes closed, and my consciousness sank down into the half-death of slumber. I knew not what had aroused me, but I found myself out of my bunk on my feet wide awake, my soul vibrating to the warning of danger as it might have thrilled to a trumpet call. I threw open the door. The cabin light was burning low. I saw Maud, my Maud, straining and struggling and crushed in the embrace of Wolf Larsen's arms. I could see the vain beat and flutter of her as she strove, pressing her face against his breast, to escape from him. All this I saw on the very instant of seeing. And as I sprang forward, I struck him with my fist on the face as he raised his head, but it was a puny blow. He roared in a ferocious, animal-like way and gave me a shove with his hand. It was only a shove, a flirt of the wrist, yet so tremendous was his strength that I was hurled backward as from a catapult. I struck the door of the stateroom which had formerly been Mugridge's, splintering and smashing the panels with the impact of my body. I struggled to my feet with difficulty dragging myself clear of the wrecked door, unaware of any hurt whatever. I was conscious only of an overmastering rage. I think I too cried aloud as I drew the knife at my hip and sprang forward a second time. But something had happened. They were reeling apart. I was close upon him, my knife uplifted. But I withheld the blow. I was puzzled by the strangeness of it. Maud was leaning against the wall, one hand out for support. But he was staggering, his left hand pressed against his forehead and covering his eyes, and with the right, he was groping about him in a dazed sort of way. It struck against the wall, and his body seemed to express a muscular and physical relief at the contact, as though he had found his bearings his location in space, as well as something against which to lean. Then I saw red again. All my wrongs and humiliations flashed upon me with a dazzling brightness. All that I had suffered and others had suffered at his hands. All the enormity of the man's very existence. I sprang upon him, blindly, insanely, and drove the knife into his shoulder. I knew then that it was no more than a flesh wound. I had felt the steel grate on his shoulder blade, and I raised the knife to strike at a more vital part. But Maud had seen my first blow, and she cried, Don't! Please, don't! I dropped my arm for a moment, and a moment only. Again the knife was raised, and Wolf Larsen would have surely died had not she stepped between. Her arms were around me. Her hair was brushing my face. My pulse rushed up in an unwanted manner, yet my rage mounted with it. She looked me bravely in the eyes. For my sake, she begged. I would kill him for your sake, I cried, trying to free my arm without hurting her. Hush, she said, and laid her fingers lightly on my lips. I could have kissed them, had I dared even then in my rage. The touch of them was so sweet, so very sweet. Please, please, she pleaded, and she disarmed me by the words, as I was to discover they would ever disarm me. I stepped back, separating from her, and replaced the knife in its sheath. I looked at Wolf Larsen. He still pressed his left hand against his forehead. It covered his eyes. His head was bowed. He seemed to have grown limp. His body was sagging at the hips. His great shoulders were drooping and shrinking forward. Van Weyden, He called hoarsely and with a note of fright in his voice. Oh, Van Weyden, where are you? I looked at Maud. She did not speak, but nodded her head. Here I am, I answered, stepping to his side what is the matter help me to a seat he said in the same hoarse frightened voice i am a sick man a very sick man Hump," he said as he left my sustaining grip and sank into a chair his head dropped forward on the table and was buried in his hands from time to time it rocked back and forward as with pain Once, when he half-raised it, I saw the sweat standing in heavy drops on his forehead about the roots of his hair. I am a sick man, a very sick man, he repeated again, and yet once again. What is the matter, I asked, resting my hand on his shoulder. What can I do for you? But he shook my hand off with an irritated movement, and for a long time I stood by his side in silence. Maud was looking on, her face awed and frightened. What had happened to him, we could not imagine. Humph, I'm, he said at last, I must get into my bunk. Lend me a hand. I'll be all right in a little while. It's those damn headaches, I believe. I was afraid of them. I had a feeling. No, I don't know what I'm talking about. Help me into my bunk. But when I got him into his bunk, he again buried his face in his hands, covering his eyes, and as I turned to go, I could hear him murmuring, I am a sick man, a very sick man. Maud looked at me inquiringly as I emerged. I shook my head, saying, Something has happened to him. What, I don't know. He is helpless and frightened, I imagine, for the first time in his life. It must have occurred before he received the knife thrust, which made only a superficial wound. You must have seen what happened. She shook her head. I saw nothing. It is just as mysterious to me. He suddenly released me and staggered away. But What shall we do? What shall I do? If you will wait, please, until I come back, I answered. I went on deck. Lewis was at the wheel. You may go forward and turn in, I said, taking it from him. He was quick to obey, and I found myself alone on the deck of the ghost. As quietly as was possible, I clued up the top sails, lowered the flying jib and staysail, backed the jib over, and flattened the mainsail. Then I went below to Maud, placed my finger on my lips for silence, and entered Wolf Larsen's room. He was in the same position in which I had left him and his head was rocking, almost writhing, from side to side. Anything I can do for you? I asked. He made no reply at first, but on my repeating the question, he answered, No, no, I'm all right. Leave me alone till morning. As I turned to go, I noted that his head had resumed its rocking motion. Maud was waiting patiently for me, and I took notice, with a thrill of joy, of the queenly poise of her head and her glorious, calm eyes. Calm and secure they were as her spirit itself. Will you trust yourself to me for a journey of six hundred miles or so? I asked. You mean, she asked, and I knew she had guessed aright. Yes, I mean just that, I replied. There is nothing left for us but the open boat." "'For me, you mean,' she said. "'You are certainly as safe here as you have been.' "'No, there is nothing left for us but the open boat,' I iterated stoutly. "'Will you please dress as warmly as you can at once and make into a bundle whatever you wish to bring with you?' "'And make all haste,' I added as she turned toward her statement. The lazarette was directly beneath the cabin, and opening the trapdoor in the floor and carrying a candle with me, I dropped down and began overhauling the ship's stores. I selected mainly from the canned goods, and by the time I was ready, willing hands were extended from above to receive what I passed up. We worked in silence. I helped myself also to blankets, mittens, oilskins, caps, and such things from the slop it was no light adventure, this trusting ourselves in a small boat to so raw and stormy sea, and it was imperative that we should guard ourselves against the cold and wet. We worked feverishly, carrying our plunder on deck and depositing it amidships, so feverishly that Maud, whose strength was hardly a positive quantity, had to give over, exhausted, and sit on the steps at the break of the poop. This did not serve to recover her, and she lay on her back on the hard deck, arms stretched out and whole body relaxed. It was a trick I remembered of my sister, and I knew she would soon be herself again. I knew also that weapons would not come in amiss, and I re-entered Wolf Larsen's stateroom to get his rifle and shotgun. I spoke to him, but he made no answer, though his head was still rocking from side to side, and he was not asleep. Goodbye, Lucifer, I whispered to myself as I softly closed the door. Next to obtain was a stock of ammunition. An easy matter, though I had to enter the steerage companionway to do it. Here the hunters stored the ammunition boxes they carried in the boats, and here, but a few feet from their noisy revels, I took possession of two boxes. Next, to lower a boat. Not so simple a task for one man. Having cast off the lashings, I hoisted first on the forward tackle, then on the aft, till the boat cleared the rail, when I lowered away one tackle, then the other, for a couple of feet till it hung snugly above the water against the schooner's side. I made certain that it contained the proper equipment of oars, rowlocks, and sail. Water was a consideration, and I robbed every boat aboard of its breaker. As there were nine boats, all told, it meant that we should have plenty of water, and ballast as well, though there was the chance that the boat would be overloaded, what of the generous supply of other things I was taking. While Maud was passing me the provisions and I was storing them in the boat, a sailor came on deck from the forecastle. He stood by the weather rail for a time, we were lowering over the lee rail, and then sauntered slowly amidships, where he again paused and stood facing the wind, with his back toward us. I could hear my heart beating as I crouched low in the boat. Maud had sunk down upon the deck and was, I knew, lying motionless, her body in the shadow of the bulwark. But the man never turned, and after stretching his arms above his head and yawning audibly, he retraced his steps to the forecastle scuttle and disappeared. A few minutes sufficed to finish the loading, and I lowered the boat into the water. As I helped Maud over the rail and felt her form close to mine, it was all I could do to keep from crying out, "I love you, I love you!" Truly, Humphrey Van Weyden was at last in love, I thought, as her fingers clung to mine while I lowered her down into the boat. I held on to the rail with one hand and supported her weight with the other and I was proud at the moment of the feat. It was a strength I had not possessed a few months before on the day I said goodbye to Charlie Furuseth and started for San Francisco and the ill-fated Martinez. As the boat ascended on a sea, her feet touched and I released her hands. I cast off the tackles and leaped after her. I had never rowed in my life, but I put out the oars and at the expense of much effort got the boat clear of the ghost. Then I experimented with the sail. I had seen the boat-steerers and hunters set their spritz sails many times, yet this was my first attempt. What took them possibly two minutes took me twenty, and in the end I succeeded in setting and trimming it, and with the steering oar in my hands hauled on the wind. There lies Japan, I remarked straight before us. Humphrey van Weyden, she said, you are a brave man. Nay, I answered, it is you who are a brave woman. We turned our heads, swayed by a common impulse to see the last of the ghost. Her low hull lifted and rolled to windward on a sea. Her canvas loomed darkly in the night. Her lashed wheel creaked as the rudder kicked. Then sight and sound of her faded away, and we were alone on the dark sea. End of chapter 26